Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Investor and former richest man in the world, Warren Buffett, he currently lies around sixth, famously said, it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming naked. The year of COVID has seen the tide recede for miles, and democratic nations, political systems, and societies have been shown to be stark naked. The implicit trust citizens and democracies put in their governments to at least rise above partisan politics and handle emergencies has been shattered. Mistake after blundering mistake has been made from the U.S. through the EU to India and Brazil in organizing pandemic response, effectively communicating government strategy, and forging national unity in a uniquely terrible crisis. Nowhere is this more true than in Britain, despite a so far successful vaccination program. The overarching reason for Britain's failures during the year of COVID is simple. Britain is a one-party state. That party is the Conservative Party. Am I exaggerating for effect? Not really. I have observed the effect of one-party governance in places like the Soviet Union and Egypt and Iraq and Iran. Many of the negative qualities one would associate with those regimes are present in British public life. Corruption, first and foremost. Political opposition fragmented and fragmenting further as time out of power increases. And a sycophantic pro-the-one-party press. The British difference in achieving this status is that while the country is genuinely democratic, its electoral system and lack of checks and balances on the power center allows for what one conservative politician called elective dictatorship. The Tories achieved their dominance on, in the good times, around 42% of the vote. By comparison, in Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath party used to get 98 or 99%. But then Saddam's dictatorship was more of the traditional kind. For listeners who don't live in the United Kingdom, here's how the system works. The party that wins the majority of parliamentary seats customarily forms the government. If a party wins a seat by one vote or ten votes or a hundred or twenty thousand, makes no difference. The leader of the majority party becomes prime minister. There is no separate vote for that executive position because, unlike in the U.S. or France, there is no separate executive branch of government. Remember this point, please, because I'm going to come back to it later. We are now in the 11th year of conservative rule. There have been four general elections in that time, and the results demonstrate the madness of the British system. In 2010, the Conservatives won just 36.1% of the vote, 305 seats in Parliament, not enough for a majority, but they went into coalition with the Liberal Democrats and governed as if they had no partner at all. In 2015, the party won 36.9% of the vote. That little tick upward translated into a majority of 12 seats in the House of Commons. In 2017, they won 42% of the vote. But even with that dramatic increase, they actually lost their majority. It really is a crazy system. But the Tories continue to be in government because, I don't know, they drive on the wrong side of the road here as well. No, no, seriously, they continue to be in government because they are, in their own words, the natural party of government. When I moved to London 35 years ago and started covering British politics, I was told the Conservatives are the natural party of government, often 
usually by conservative MPs or conservative pundits. I resisted this idea because skepticism is an essential tool of journalism, but also because it was the age of Margaret Thatcher, and everywhere I went around the country, you could find large numbers of people who genuinely hated her and her party and the policies she was imposing. I say imposing because even she, in her three election victories, never got more than 42.4% of the vote. Yet with a minority of the country behind her, she radically altered the social contract that had been in place since the end of World War II. I was given a new framework for the idea that the Conservatives were the natural party of government as the election of 1997 approached. There wasn't an opinion poll in the country that predicted the Tories would win a fifth election on the trot. John Major was no match for Tony Blair in the charisma sweepstakes. Now, when I interviewed conservative politicians, I was blithely assured that the party needed a spell in opposition to refresh itself. It was tired. Tired of what? The burden of governing, came the answer. Well, at that point they had been in charge for 18 years, so maybe they were tired. They were mired in what the Tory press called sleaze. Another thing I had been told regularly was that Britain was one of the least corrupt countries on earth. Well, okay, a conservative MP taking a manila envelope with eight or nine hundred pounds in cash to ask a parliamentary question, as happened. Well, I guess that's not corruption. It was too small an amount to use the C word. The Tories lost in a historic landslide and didn't get back into power for 13 years in that coalition government. So they didn't actually win, but with David Cameron as prime minister, they acted like it was a restoration of the natural order. And in a way, it was. Cameron, like 20 previous prime ministers, went to Eton. The Tories, as they had been for nearly two-thirds of Queen Elizabeth II's long reign, were running things. And the pathologies of the one-party state began to grow, starting with corruption. The sleaze of the major years has been exponentially magnified. Fundraising is part of modern democratic politics. If you're a businessman and want government contracts, it's an accepted part of getting that contract that you make donations to a political party. You have to spend money to make money happens everywhere. But the pandemic has shown how effectively this quid pro quo works in Britain. As COVID took root with what we now understand to be its natural, exponentially expansive force, Britain was caught without supplies of everything, starting with protective garments for health and care home workers. Boris Johnson's government put out an all-points bulletin for supply of PPE, personal protective equipment. It scrapped the usual rules for government procurement, including competitive bids. Wholly understandable in the circumstances, but somehow almost all the suppliers were also Conservative Party donors. Around £8 billion, $11 billion of the procurement budget went to Conservative Party donors with no previous experience of manufacturing medical equipment, according to the New York Times. Like at an airport check-in counter, there was a VIP lane for Tory donors pitching for work. One in ten of those bids succeeded. Then there was the ordinary lane. One in a hundred of those proposals were given contracts. Example, cosmetics executive David Miller gave a reported £60,000 to the Conservatives during the previous decade. He was given a £160 million contract to manufacture PPE. Talk about return on investment. 
The country had to get test and trace kits together from nothing. The pub landlord and Secretary of Health, Matt Hancock's constituency, a friend, sent him a WhatsApp message, saying he had gone into packaging for takeaway drinks and could make vials for the test kits. From those WhatsApp messages, he got a £30 million contract. In the first nine months of the crisis, the UK spent more money on procurement than any other in the G7. Clearly, in Britain, the personal is political, in a particular way. If you have the personal number of Matt Hancock, you can WhatsApp him and possibly, probably, get some government money thrown your way. But how does an ordinary person get that number? Even Prime Minister Boris Johnson can be reached on speed dial. He has been as promiscuous about giving away his personal mobile phone number as he has been in his love life. We found this out recently because the Daily Mail and BBC obtained a transcript of a text conversation between Johnson and British inventor-industrialist Sir James Dyson from March 2020. At that moment, the first wave of the pandemic was beginning to overwhelm Britain's National Health Service. It was clear the country was going to run out of ventilators and needed to get a hold of more fast, either by buying them or building them. As part of the Brexit, we don't need no stinking EU help on anything attitude that has overwhelmed the Tory party in the last five years. So Johnson turned to, among others, Dyson, an early advocate of leaving the EU, who after the Brexit vote decided to move his company headquarters to Singapore anyway. But the plan came up against a problem. Taxes. Haggling over how much Singapore-based folk who might return to the UK to help design and build the thing would have to pay. The transcript of these phone texts is instructive. Dyson, we are ready, but nobody seems to want us to proceed. Sadly, James. Johnson, I will fix it to mow. We need you. It looks fantastic. Johnson, in the interval, has a word with Rishi Sunak, Chancellor of the Exchequer, about Dyson's problems. Johnson, Rishi says it's fixed. We need you here. Dyson, thanks, I will give the ventilator our all. James, but then Dyson demands the tax pledge in writing. You don't get to be a billionaire by taking people at their word. Dyson, dear Boris, I'm afraid that we need a response to our letter below from Rishi, please. We really need Rishi to answer the letter we sent, now. Johnson, James, I am First Lord of the Treasury, and you can take it that we are backing you to do what you need. The corrupt crony procurement contributed mightily to Britain's extraordinary death toll during the first nine months of the pandemic. By mid-January, the UK had the highest per capita number of deaths in the world. The other main contributing factor to the situation was the character of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, a man many in the Conservative Party knew to be unsuited for the job. He was fired for lying from both newspaper jobs and ministerial positions. But like their first cousins in the Republican Party dealing with Donald Trump, they recognized Boris as a vote winner and so gave him their support. The leaked Dyson text was only one of the most embarrassing things to happen to Johnson in recent weeks. Another recent leak claimed in October, shortly after the start of a second lockdown, that Johnson said at a Downing Street meeting, No more fucking lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high in their thousands. 
In another anonymous leak, his mistress during his final four years as mayor of London, an American woman named Jennifer R. Curie, returned the news with stories about the £126,000 worth of contracts Johnson threw her way for organizing networking events for tech entrepreneurs in London. The stories also emphasized the pole-dancing apparatus she installed in the London flat where they had their trysts. Oddly, the scandal with most legs in the press is one about who paid for the refurbishment of the Prime Ministerial residence at 11 Downing Street. Did a Tory donor pick up the tab in breach of the ministerial code? And has there been a quids pro quo for it? Most of these stories are being broken by the Daily Mail, a rabidly conservative newspaper. So who is leaking all this Johnson stuff to them? And here we get to another typical aspect of the one-party state, factionalism in the ruling party. When you don't have to maintain discipline to win elections, you can squabble amongst yourselves. Much of what is happening today has echoes of stories I covered for NPR 30 years ago when John Major was prime minister. Back then, there was a steady drip of embarrassments being leaked to the conservative press. Now, I said earlier that the press is sycophantic. Eighty percent of the national newspapers in this newspaper-reading country are volubly pro-conservative. With the party riven by factions, these papers are used by one group or another to undermine the current leader of the party, a.k.a. the prime minister. Why would conservatives aggressively, viciously, anonymously fight one another? because they can always change the leader without calling an election. It's a less painful way of refreshing the party than losing in a landslide to Tony Blair. This is what happened to Margaret Thatcher in 1990, as her opinion poll ratings plummeted over a couple of issues, including Europe. She was challenged for the leadership and ultimately resigned. John Major was selected to replace her, and the change worked. Two years later, when there was a scheduled election, he won. In 2019, the Tories did it again, forcing Theresa May to resign. They appointed Boris Johnson to replace her. Appointed. Voters didn't get a choice. Six months later, Johnson did give voters the choice and won in a landslide, in the British fashion. On 43.8% of the vote, he won an impregnable 80-seat majority in part because the Labour Party was hopelessly divided and led by an anti-Semitic crank named Jeremy Corbyn. Another hallmark of the one-party state is whatever opposition parties exist end up faction-ridden as well, and for the same reason the ruling party does. There is no prospect of the ballot box changing anything, so might as well fight among ourselves. So now we in Britain, who pay attention to politics, have to be Kremlinologists, trying to figure out which faction inside the Tory Politburo is scheming to get rid of Boris. And we have years ahead to speculate. The next general election is scheduled for May 2024. For Labour to overturn that 80-seat majority would take a landslide of historic proportion, and that is simply not on the cards. After 2024, the next general election is due in 2029, 19 years after they regained power, maybe the natural party of government will be in need of a spell in opposition. The networks of corruption will still be in place, ready to be revived when they get back to power. But who knows what politics will be like then. There's a kind of political exhaustion in much of the UK that goes beyond COVID. 
One final aspect of the one-party corrupt state is that after a while, most citizens just give up. People come to accept the corruption and the cronyism and, like Candide, leave the world of affairs to great men and stay at home to tend their gardens. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, it's not all about the Tory parties or Donald Trump, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.